Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, Season 2, Episode 8, To the Journey, where we will be looking at Chapters 13 through 15 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of object lessons. To the Journey kind of reminds me of To the Pain. <laughs> it's more of a toast than a dueling condition, but, you know. Alright, real quick, this is us from the future. We are breaking in to this episode to ask you a favor. That's right. We're soon going to be having a travel weekend and we need to record a relatively quick episode, so we were thinking a mailbag might be a fun way to do that. So that means we need you all to give us questions, or at least some of you all. We want anything. They can be kingkiller questions, they can be personal questions, they can be generic general advice questions. With one caveat, we will not be answering what we think of the time between books, whether or not we will get Doors of Stone. Those are less than interesting questions. You're welcome to ask them, but we won't be answering them. We won't even really be bringing that up during the episode. So find us a better question. Now, the other fun thing is that because we are going to be going on a trip to see family. Hi, boo. Because we're going on a trip to see family, we might be asking them to help out. Which means we might be asking them your questions. Let us know if you have questions for Will's family. Specifically, his parents, his sister, our one-year-old nibbling, or his extended family, which is mostly his aunt's cousin and grandfather. So if you would like to ask us a question, feel free to respond on our tweet thread on our Twitter, at WaystonePod, or on our Instagram, also at WaystonePod, or you can comment on our Patreon post at patreon.com slash WaystonePod. Anyway... We recorded this the day before the episode you're listening to comes out, so that's why it's a little bit, like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da interruption. Back to the episode. Enjoy! Well, here we are, a week after we recorded our Solstice pod, which comes out tomorrow for us, but a week and a half ago for you? Uh, time travel is fun. But in that episode... We had just gotten our new lamp for the room that we record in, and it's got this lovely orange glow of an Edison bulb. And with the curtains drawn over the windows, this room is a whole different atmosphere from what it usually is. And last week, it was firmly January, the time of year where in the Pacific Northwest, we have forgotten what summer is because it is overcast and rainy. Yeah, the coming weeks are going to be an unpleasant reminder of what summer is. Yeah, the people in Seattle are going to melt, and there's a reason for that. Because Seattle, most of the people don't have air conditioning, and once it hits 80, you just see little puddles of sunscreen instead of people all over the city. 
Yeah, there's usually a run on box fans and portable air conditioning units. <laughs> Whereas a little further south where we are now, air conditioning is normal. And apparently, so are broken air conditioning units, such as the one that is outside of our neighbor's house. We can only assume that that's the noise that we keep hearing. So if a weird droning noise happens in the background, blame people who don't know how to maintain their air conditioner. No shade. I don't know how to do that either. We call our landlord. Anyway, with that rant out of the way, why don't we go through our explanation? So as you know, each week we'll be examining a section of the wise man's fear through a chosen lens and then figuring out what we can take from the text and apply to our lives. Then we'll take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian phrenemus of the week. And after that, we'll expand our understanding with our own world with an interesting fact. Then we'll go ahead and share a recommended thing of the week. And then finally, we'll wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Changing it up, I see. Sometimes change is good. I'll let you do the disclaimers this time. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Also, a word to our community, please be kind to yourselves, to one another, and to the creators of the worlds we love exploring. I missed a whole section, so our discussions will naturally assume that either A, you've already read the main books, The Name of the Wind and The Wise Man's Fear, as well as the other novellas in the continuity, or B, spoilers aren't a thing in your universe, but they are in ours. So spoiler warning. Got that covered? Cool. Yay. All right. So with all of that out of the way, let's go ahead and dive into our recap. You got 45 seconds. Let me get my timer here real quick. Says the person who is always giving me a little bit of guff every time that I don't know where my phone or my timer is and I just saw yours. Haha. <laughs> you were sitting on it. All right. So let me get that timer all set up here. So we'll go ahead and kick things off here in three, two, one, go. We start with a hunt through the archives for the books Elodin asked his students to read, wherein Quoth pretends that he totally doesn't know anything about how the archives are organized. This is followed by a chapter that reads like a love letter to the mystery and wonder of old libraries, and Quoth searches out any and all information that he can find on the Chandrian. At his next class with Elodin, we see our inspiration for our interesting fact segment, and Elodin spends 10 minutes chasing after milk pod seeds. At the end of the section, Quoth goes looking for Denna. Of course he goes looking for Denna. And this time, he finds her. With Ambrose. What? 40.63 seconds. Yay! Just under the wire. Five seconds? I had five whole seconds. <laughs> You're eating them up, though. Eh. Anyway, this is a great segment here. A lot of the stuff that happens here was one of the direct inspirations for us actually starting this podcast. Yes, because we had a conversation about the milk pod seeds and why Elodin would spend 10 minutes chasing after them in such dramatic fashion. We'll get to that. But there's also a lot of good stuff here as well. Like, we got our whole idea for the interesting facts segment from this section as well. 
And I think the ethos exemplified here is really what drives us as well. It's what got us thinking about things through a philosophical lens. And I think this is some great writing here and some pretty astute character work as well. Yes, there's a lot. There is a lot. And to cap it off with Denna and Ambrose. Ugh. I mean, we'll get to that part of the monkey's paw wish when we get down to it. But, <laughs> <laughs> but let's start us off here. So our story opens with Willem leading Kvothe into the archives for the first time on a legal basis. Well, I mean, technically the second time on a legal basis, except for, you know, fire. But this is the first time that he's been officially welcomed into the archives. That's fair, because Ambrose is a deck. It's also just, I think, telling this is the first time that Kvothe has been able to visit in an official capacity with his friends. And this is where he gets to actually partake in a key part of university life the way he's supposed to. I thought that was kind of sweet. Absolutely. The thing, though, that sticks in my brain at this point, he's going to search for the things that Elodin has assigned all seven people in the class to go find. And he asked Willem and not Fella, who is a scribe and in the class. I mean... There is one very clear logistical issue. What if they're all looking at the same time and they take their respective finds to their own reading holes? I kind of get the sense that this was something he wanted to do specifically with Willem, just because they're friends. That's perfectly fair. Do your first, yeah, I'm in the archives, but maybe not. This is my first assignment that the rest of my class also needs to do in the archives. You can do multiple trips. I also noticed, though, that Kvothe seems to have learned something from last time, which is to say, take some time to let the records update. This is true. And then metaphorical slap in the face to Fella, who is stuck at the desk. She's happy to officially admit him in. Though she does note that Ambrose left a cruel note. Not a particularly funny cruel note, either. Calls Kvothe a brew bastard in the official ledger. It's just mean. It's not funny. It's not even clever. Ambrose isn't particularly clever, at least he is not particularly clever in Kvothe's retelling of the story. Ambrose is not particularly clever when it comes to wordplay. However, he can be pretty clever when it comes to wielding power in subtle and indirect ways. And then really upset when it doesn't work. I do, though, appreciate that Kvothe, instead of getting performatively angry, gets performatively glib. Well, I mean, the target of his ire isn't there, and there's nothing to be gained by ranting about it. I think at this point he'd be worried if there weren't some animosity from Ambrose somewhere. And we gotta remind the audience that Ambrose is a figure in all of this. And a deck. So, in this first officially sanctioned trip, of course, he has to play along and pretend that this is actually his first time in the stacks at all. Like he hasn't been skulking around with his hidden lamp after sneaking in through the underthing. So, again, 
would be totally easier to keep up the ruse if he had had his first official trip to the archives be with the rest of the crew, including Fella, or just Fella, because Fella knows that he's been skulking around in the archives. Like, Quoth even says, I wouldn't have done that to Willem because he has to report to Lauren. And it's like, but you, you, you jerk, you made Fella know that you've been sneaking in here. That said, this is also one of the first times he's been able to openly explore the open areas and more traveled places since previously he's had to skulk about and hope that he's not noticed in some of the more backwater locations. So that does mean that he's got a little bit of new stuff that he hasn't had a chance to really get to. And he actually doesn't have to work too hard because he is experiencing some legit awe here. I mean, there's stuff he still hasn't had a chance to get to. The archives are huge. Let's not forget that. It's basically an entire city block. It's like Powell's. Yeah. <laughs> but probably more floors up and more floors down. Possibly. Then Willem takes Quoth to his favorite reading hole that he and Sim hide out in. I note that there are what appear to be encyclopedia. <laughs> Identical red leather books line the shelves. Either that or the Reader's Digest copies of everything. Right. The things that are all uniform and you really have to read the cover or the spine to know what's in them, but they make an impressive backdrop. You know, it's also possible that these are all a set of books that had been falling apart that were transcribed into new editions by the same group, since we do know that scripts sometimes spend their work time doing that. The part of me that is just enchanted by this really wants to believe that the archives bought into like the Encyclopedia Britannica of the early 90s. Encyclopedia Aetorica. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know that's totally a thing. It's gotta be. Every library I ever went to growing up, there was always a Britannica case, there was a World Book case, and then uh, I think there was a U.S. World and News Report one as well. You read the encyclopedia for fun, didn't you? Yeah, you never knew what you'd find. And it was always a really great place to start for research projects. This is true. Especially if you want out-of-date information the moment it's printed. Well, I mean, that's the nature of pretty much everything academic published. I know. It's also our second hint at just how much hell data governance truly is at the archives. <laughs> In this case... Willem includes a pretty stern threat about it, which is to say, don't fork it up. So he specifically says, this stood out to me and I'll explain why and you'll probably agree with me. You come in, read half a book, and then hide it so you can continue later at your own convenience. Will's hands made a gripping motion as if clutching at the front of someone's shirt or perhaps a throat. Then you forget where you have put the book, and it is gone as surely as if you have burned it. If I ever discover that you have done such a thing, no god will keep you safe from me. So, you and I both worked at grocery stores. Where is the worst place to leave an ice cream sandwich box? Probably the dairy cooler. No, that is not the worst place. It's where the roasted chickens are in the deli. 
Oh yeah, that's a pretty terrible place. Melted, soggy, <laughs> unusable, throw it away, shrink. But how many times have you found anything that's refrigerated in a place that is not supposed to be refrigerated and anything that is not supposed to be refrigerated in a refrigerator? I found some weird things. You know, sometimes it was something where one of the stock folks had their eye on something they wanted to pick up after the shift. And so they'd, you know, squirrel it away somewhere and then pick it up, take it out to the register and check it out on their way out. Oh, they'd have hated me. Not that I would have done it on purpose, but if I ever saw things in the wrong space and I could salvage it, I would reshelve it. Yeah, like I say, usually if something was being saved, it was going to be hidden back in the dairy cooler, like in the back room area, like where you go to throw the milk and the eggs. You guys threw your milk and your eggs? Yeah, that was what it was called when we'd throw them down the aisle. How many pallets did you throw, you know? You threw eggs? That's what it was called, yeah. Did you throw eggs? In that sense, yes, but not <laughs> literally. Yeah, when you'd backload a shelf, it was throwing. I know that. I just, it's funny trying to get you to admit that you threw eggs. Have you ever tried to clean up eggs? Yes, it's maddening. What is the worst thing that you've ever had to try to clean up at a grocery store? Uh, probably the pallet full of natural foods that I destroyed with a forklift. Oh. There was broken glass, there was alcohol, there was applesauce, there was pretty much everything because natural foods were all from a separate vendor that just gave us a bundled order of everything. This was a mixed palette full of all kinds of stuff. And with an unfortunate forklift accident, it meant that I was spending the evening just trying to clean up the back room. It was pretty gross. Uh, I was a little gun-shy around the forklift after that. Took me a couple months to be able to feel like I could do so safely, and then also for my managers to feel comfortable with me doing it. So, for me, it's the detergent aisle after an earthquake. Yeah, there's nothing worse than cleaning cleaners. <laughs> right, because all you're doing is making suds. Yep. It was a toss-up between that and the alcohol aisle. Thank goodness it wasn't, like, you can buy hard alcohol in Washington at that point, because this was 20-plus-odd years ago. The Nisqually earthquake was 20 years ago. <laughs> oh, dear. But wine and beer, all the glass. Ugh. Yeah. Kind of circle back. In this, we see that Willem... As much as this stuff makes him miserable, he is passionate about the work that he does. He absolutely hates when people mess up this system because he actually cares about organizing this, even as he knows this is a fundamentally futile exercise. I know where he's coming from. It feels so satisfying to actually organize and categorize a data architecture, and it's really maddening when people mess it up. Someone decides that Oh, your database schema doesn't allow me to use enough characters, so can you just do a data type change? That should be no problem, right? Oh, flames, flames, flames on the side of my face. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I remember that one. And 
I remember when that was the ask, I was like, you need to do a better job <laughs> of pruning your data. Keep it cleaner. It doesn't fit. We're not going to do a schema change just so that you can fit an extra set of characters in there. That leads to all sorts of unintended consequences. Just so that you can fit something new and you break everything that came before. Oh man. And not to mention, once data sets get really large, a schema change like that is something that can take days, sometimes weeks even, to actually propagate all the way through. Because it has to go through and revalidate every single line of data in there. Okay, horror story over. I think we should go back to the book. All right. Then we get to the wild goose chase through the archives, and here are the things that Quoth has found. So we've got an enjoyable travelogue, a short volume of rather bad poetry, a book of ponderously written rhetorical philosophy, a book detailing wildflowers in northern Ator, a fencing manual with confusing illustrations, a thick book of poetry, the journal of a madman that Quoth describes as a headache pressed between covers, two Modegan books of indeterminate subject matter, a series of essays about crop rotation, a monograph on vintage mosaics, a 200-year-old tax ledger from a barony in the small kingdoms, an outdated medical text, and a badly translated morality play. And they couldn't find the last book. Temerant Vostra. One thing that we discover on this is that Kvothe has actually gained a pretty solid working understanding of how to find various far-flung things in the archives. And I think actually that's specifically what he is being taught here. The actual content of these books does not matter at all. As we find out, Elodin really doesn't care. He doesn't care about the books, no. He cares about the process, but not the actual results. So Elodin is teaching them two things, I think, here. One, he's teaching them to value the ability to ferret out information and to ferret out sources of truth. There's a reason why research methodology is a required class at a lot of universities. And they don't even ask you to pick a particular thing. They don't really care about what you're researching. They just want you to know how to use the information systems and structures to find what you're looking for. The actual content really doesn't matter at all. And the second thing I think that Elodin is trying to teach them is to value the story. Each student has a story about how they had to find these various things. He's basically just given them MacGuffins and then let them see what happens. And it's the MacGuffins that are driving the story. We even see that Quoth starts to enjoy sort of that thrill of the hunt as he goes through the archives looking for what he's trying to find. And then he ends up applying these methodologies in his search for information about the Chandrian. He likes the process better than the results. Exactly. But of course, Quoth has no clue that that's what he's actually looking for here. He thinks these are just reading assignments. Elodin is all about the misdirection and getting people to do things without asking people to do those things. The thing that he's actually asking you to do may not be the thing that you think it is. He's not lying to anyone here, but there are certain students who are learning the lessons and certain ones who are not. Both. Right. He's not looking at the intentions that Elodin is setting forth. He is looking at the surface level of what he's being asked to do. And what's really funny to me here is 
you know, he's excited. He's found 19 out of 20 books. He's going to talk about it. And so he shows up early for class. You know, they're all waiting outside the classroom. And the other students show up. And they start talking about their searches and everything. So they keep doing that until they try to open the door. And About that, Kvothe opens the door. Edro? <laughs> like, it was actually stuck until he started jiggling it in frustration. Did he use the name of it? in his frustrated to get the door to open. He might have. But what's really funny to me is they get into the classroom and Elodin, of course, is not there. He's left a note that says, discuss. And so they were doing exactly that until they actually saw the instruction. At which point they looked at the slate and then looked at each other at a loss for exactly what they were supposed to be doing. <laughs> what? Right. And what's interesting is they definitely learned the lesson. They just didn't realize what the lesson was. And then they just sit around talking idly, not about what they learned, waiting for Elodin to show up. And you know what? He doesn't. And they did end up doing what they were supposed to. Discuss. Right, it makes me think that maybe, maybe, Elodin was somewhere nearby, waiting for them to do what he wanted them to do, which they never did. It's definitely a case of Kvothe missing the forest for the trees. He even says that he wasted those hours looking for Elodin's assigned reading. No, he didn't. It's like, if you are lifting weights... The weights themselves are not terribly consequential. They don't do anything for you. But in so doing, you are practicing and you are building up a muscle. And it really doesn't matter if you are lifting official weights, if you are lifting milk jugs, if you are lifting the same weight in like amplifiers or cats or children, you're still exercising and you're still lifting a weight. Again, the content of the weight doesn't matter. He was giving them an exercise to expand their mind and to think about how they think. Some people obviously took to it better than others. So then we get to Kvothe talking a little bit about the neighborhoods of the archives. So we have the place where all of the pests that like to eat paper and leather and glue are... Um, dealt with. That's gross. But I'm sure that it's just a buffet in some of the areas of the archives. Oh yeah. Not to mention you've got all of the sort of more widely traveled areas where you have people reading and studying and working. So you've got Scrivs doing transcription work and translation work, restoration work, all sorts of interesting tasks that go into running a library recataloging, leaving places where the walls of shelves look like mouths with missing teeth. That is such an evocative way of putting it. Yeah, it feels like the library could probably eat you alive and no one would know you were missing. Except for the scribs who go looking for everybody to make them leave. Yeah, I mean, it's somebody's job to clean up every night. That's why you have to sign in. So that the scribes can know that they got all of you out. 
And of course, there's the four plate door, which is the eternal mystery that needs to be brought back up after, what is it, like 700 pages that we've read since the last time we heard about the four plate door? Yeah, it's one of the grand MacGuffins of this book. Which never, ever gets addressed yet. The other thing that separates the good neighborhoods from the bad neighborhoods has to do with the ongoing organizational problems that the library is struggling with. I would say organizational feuds. Yes, because you have some areas that are fully cataloged and everything's in the ledgers and it's placed where it should be. And then you have other places that they haven't had a chance to get to yet or where the original ledgers have been destroyed. And there's enough material and content in those segments, in those floors, in those rows, where it could take decades to get to all of that. That's longer than the tenure of any single scrib or even master librarian. Archivist. Even master archivist. Yes, if you, if you prefer. <laughs> You could spend an entire career trying to correct one of these aisles. And so because we know that the, quote, good neighborhoods have been pretty well pruned in terms of what's available, Kvothe goes looking in the bad neighborhoods. Specifically for information about the Chandrian. That seems like the kind of place where if the Chandrian have any secrets left, it's going to be in places where no one knows about it. And these bad neighborhoods are fundamentally unknowable. Granted, it's not like it's particularly fruitful. I mean, the only reference he's able to find is a children's rhyme in The Book of Secrets, which, I mean, that's kind of on the nose, right? Right. Why announce that it is The Book of Secrets? It's not even in code or cipher or something like that. It's just out in the open. But here's the rhyme. Let's listen to it. The Chandrian move from place to place, but they never leave a trace. They hold their secrets very tight, but they never scratch and they never bite. They never fight and they never fuss. In fact, they are quite nice to us. They come and they go in the blink of an eye, like a bright bolt of lightning out of the sky. In fact, they are quite nice to us. Makes me think that they live among you. They probably do in some fashion. Like, some of them might live amongst the people of Timorant. No one would know. This almost paints them as kind of whimsical. Like a bright bolt of lightning out of the sky reminds me of things that we will come up to later in the book. Specifically where we believe Cinder is leading bandits, an army of whatever. Yeah, that's the bit that actually puzzles me. Because... For essentially a force of cosmic evil, local bandits pillaging merchants and tax collectors seems kind of small potatoes. Very mundane. Like, if he was involved in that at all, you would think that he would have, I don't know, delegated? I don't know, maybe he's getting his rocks off. I don't know. It's weird. Anyway, we'll get to that several chapters later. <laughs> but this portrayal of them makes the Chandrian seem rather benign. They're secretive, but they don't have any particular malice or ill will. Which Kvothe can say definitively is inaccurate at best. Yeah. Well, and it also makes me wonder if there may have been an older time, a before time, when there was a peace between humanity and the Chandrian. And something changed, and that relationship soured. 
the other question is, who is us in this scenario? The children? Maybe, but which children? I mean, and why are they holding secret rhymes in a book of secrets? I guess then the question is, whose secrets are these? And who wrote this down? Presumably, though, this children's book was written in a Turin, which, okay, so addressing this. Last time we said something that instantly got corrected on Twitter. We totally forgot that a Turin is common language in, you know, a Turin. In our defense, we could also have been referring to the Commonwealth, which would naturally speak common. Or, you know, my actual excuse is I'm old and I don't remember details as well as I would like to. And we both blanked. Anyway, back to the children's novel book thing that doesn't have a picture of the Chandrian, but has pictures of all sorts of other weird creatures and things. I'd like to know some of the other entries. Is the Cathay in this? How about the Dracus for that matter? Fair point. Moving on. Finally, Quoth pulls his head out of his archives. <laughs> And decides he's going to go visit Denna at the Gray Man. Of course, Denna is no longer at the Gray Man. And no, the young lady is no longer in residence. No, the porter will not take a message for her. No, I do not know where she has gone. <sighs> young love. Moving on. <laughs> we get our next chapter, Interesting Fact. Which is the chapter that inspired the segment of our podcast where we regale each other with interesting facts. It's a lofty pastime, and it's also one Quoth is crappy at. We'll get to that. <laughs> this is also the chapter that we discussed that made me go, whoa, okay, I want to talk about this to more people than just you, because I think that your understanding of this chapter is incredibly interesting and brought a brand new perspective to my view of how Elodin is teaching Quoth. We start off with Elodin getting in an hour late. And this makes me wonder, how long is this class? Is this like an afternoon three-hour block class? I mean, if you were Elodin, would you want to be there for a three-hour-long evening block class? No, but my question is, if you can afford to be an hour late and there is still class to teach? I don't think Elodin cares. I'm surprised anyone even stuck around an hour at that point. It strikes me that this might not be like class number three. This might be like halfway through the semester. And everyone just accepts that Elodin is weird and that there may be a chance he shows up late. Very, very late. Or they got nothing better to do. That could be. Naturally, of course, he comes in and demands an interesting fact from everyone. So let's run through the facts that we learn in this chapter. First, Brienne says that spiders can breathe underwater. Which is terrifying. <laughs> then it's Fenton's turn, and it takes him three times to get it. He starts with, there's a river south of Ventus that flows the wrong way, which doesn't count because Elodin already knew that. Then he says, Emperor Ventorin once passed a law, which the moment you start with so-and-so passed a law, you're already in the boring chapter. And Elodin's already moved on. And then, if you drink more than two quarts of seawater, you'll throw up. That catches Elodin's eye. That'll work. I think that Elodin likes gross-out humor. A little bit. 
He's got a thing for Juvenalia. So then Yuresh basically recites Cantor's power set. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then a line that I really wish hadn't been in this book, which is Elodin saying you need to get laid. Because that's a terrible thing to say. It is also a terrible stereotype about nerds. It is also Pride Month and asexuality is a thing and sex aversion is a thing and also that doesn't mean that this particular person is or has an aversion he might be in a relationship that is sexual and there's all sorts of things that are completely wrong with Elodin just saying that not to mention the fact that he is a teacher and this is a student and you should never uh. then we have Anissa who starts off with how the Yilish people never developed a written language and then we get a little bit of pedantry about how well technically they never had a written but they had a recorded language which they used through knots and braids including later on Denna uses those braids to say things like lovely in her hair and then she wins with, there's a type of dog in Scaria that gives birth through a vestigial penis. Again, with the juvenilia. Ow. Yeah, I'm just sitting here trying to imagine what it would be like to pass a child through a urethra. No. I'm not. I wasn't. I unfortunately am now. And all I can think of is kidney stones. And I... Mm, Let's move on. <laughs> Then Fella comes in with 80 years ago, the medic had discovered how to remove cataracts from eyes. And when they'd figured out how to do this, it meant that they could restore sight to people that had never been able to see before. And, and Elodin tries to brush her off and go, this is not that interesting, duh. But Fella pushes on because that's not actually the fact she's getting at. The fact she's getting at is that these people who had never been able to see before when presented with a round object and a flat object, for instance, like a sphere and a cube, and we're told one of these is round and one of these is not, could only identify the globe as round after touching it, because they'd never experienced round as a visual quality that something had. It was purely a tactile quality for them. And that actually really gets Elodin's attention here, because it's something about how we perceive and experience the world. Elodin really is interested in qualia, what it is like to be something, what it is like to have a thing, to, to have an experience. And that's something that gets his attention and gets him to declare Fellow the winner even before having heard Quoth's thing. But he's pretty dismissive of Quoth because Quoth's crap at it. I do, though, like Quoth saying that he scowled as loudly as he could. That's... Oh, just because I've done that. To be fair, Quoth does suck at this game. But this is our first mention of the Adem in detail. I'm sure that they've been mentioned in passing before, but it's the Adem mercenaries have a secret art called the Lathani. It is the key to what makes them such fierce warriors. And Elodin pushes back and goes, so what is it? And... I don't know. Like I said, it's secret. Yeah, it's... They have a proper noun. You could call it anything you wanted at that point. 
That's not really a fact, that's basically just a hole in your knowledge. But it's a nice little bit of foreshadowing. And of course the prize for this is just a milkweed pod that Elodin had in his pocket somewhere. Glorified pocket lint, really. I get the impression that it's kind of like dandelion seeds. Yeah, that's kind of how the description seems to me as well. So then, Quoth naturally is just annoyed at being told that he sucks at something, because he's never really truly sucked at something before. Oh, he's sucked at things before. He's just not confronted with it. He's never been made to feel incompetent about these things. Mostly because he does them and he acknowledges them, but he doesn't do them in front of other people. He's very self-conscious about it. Anyway, on to the milkweed pod. So, after really getting annoyed that he's being asked to do something he's bad at, and he wants to learn the name of the wind and do all sorts of cool magic and blah blah blah, then Elendin asks Svela to crack open her prize. And so she breaks open the pod, and of course inside are a whole bunch of little floaty seeds, like dandelions. And then he gestures for her to toss them up into the air, which she does. And then he sets about trying to collect them. And it does not go well. He's just sitting there running after each one of these little things. And every time he gets close to them, he disturbs them further, and they go flying off into the air. He started to chase the seeds wildly around the room, trying to snatch them out of the air with his hands. At first he did it one-handed, like you do to catch a ball. Then he started clapping at them the way that you'd swat at a fly. And then he tried to catch them with both hands, the way a child might cup a firefly out of the air. The more he chased, the more frantic he became. The faster he ran, the wilder he grabbed. Like, this went on for ten minutes. Eventually... He tripped over a chair, stumbled painfully onto the stone floor, and tore open the leg of his pants, bloodying his knee. Clutching his leg, he sat on the ground and let loose with a string of angry cursing, the like of which I had never heard in my entire life. I expect that this might have continued, but while drawing an angry breath, he sucked one of the floating milkweed seeds into his mouth and began to cough and choke violently. Eventually, he spat out the seed, caught his breath, got to his feet, and limped out of the lecture hall without saying another word. Here's what all that is. That's Quoth. That is Quoth to a T. That is exactly how Quoth is. He is running around chasing all of these hints and rumors. He's trying to learn these grand secrets by just running right after them. He is completely failing to do so because everything he does only serves to disturb the thing he's trying to find. Kicks up dust, moves it out of the way. Kvothe is his own greatest enemy. There is no greater obstacle to Kvothe's success than Kvothe. And when he catches something, he catches it by accident. And then spits it out. And then he doesn't even recognize that he succeeded at something. This is exactly what the hunt was. He was running after all of these books. He found a bunch of them, read them, and then discarded them. Didn't even realize the lesson that he'd learned in all of this. He's kind of a terrible student. Like, this is basically Elodin giving Quoth a this-is-why-you-suck speech. And I say this not as a disparaging thing for Quoth. It's okay to suck at things. It's how you learn. 
sucking at something is the first step to maybe becoming kind of good at something. You don't just automatically do something and be instantly awesome at it. You have to have a period where you suck and you have to recognize that you suck. At this stage in his life, Quoth has delusions of competency. And those are what are getting in the way of him actually seeing the world as it is. His own arrogance and pride are getting in the way. They're blinding him to looking at the world and actually thinking about what actions he should take. This is also a metaphor for his relationship with Denna. Yep. Just chasing after all these milkweed pods because he thinks that that's what he needs to do. I'm just going to chase, 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 chase. And all the eddies push things further and further out away from him. It's chaos theory. Every action you take has a ripple effect. You can't just observe the world without having an effect. You have to recognize that and be considered in what your actions are. And yeah, when Quoth finds Denna, it's almost always by accident. And oftentimes he bungles it because it's not happening when he's specifically looking for it. And I kind of think that Coat, the storyteller here, does know that Quoth sucks. Otherwise, why would he tell this part of the story? Exactly. This is a way to pierce the mythology of Quoth the hero and get at Quoth the human, Quoth the vulnerable, Quoth the child. He still is a kid. He's had to grow up fast, but he hasn't grown up well. He's learned a lot of the wrong lessons because his life hasn't allowed him to learn the right ones. There has to be a moment where you break that stuff, where you break those habits that you've built over time, where you get out of the survival mechanisms. And you have to have a teacher who's willing to tell those hard truths, to say, no, it's not enough for you to be the hot shirt. You know, the big fish in the small pond you got to recognize there's a wider world out there and you're just a small part of it and everything you do has an effect. you got to learn to think about that stuff. As carefree as Elodin seems to be a lot of times, and as much as he seems to shoot from the hip, there's a sense that Elodin is very considered about what he's actually doing. He's playing a longer game than I think anybody recognizes. I think Elodin's perceptions are wiser than a lot of people give him credit for. And I think that Quoth is failing to see this because he's still got child mentality. He's still very much a kid, and he's someone who has not truly allowed himself into that vulnerable stage where he can actually learn. It's like Quoth doesn't see the consequences more than one step out. If that even. Oftentimes he's not even thinking of anything more than the immediate reaction. He's definitely not what you would call a chess master at this point. Not even a checkers master. No. He's maybe a sorry master. No. Maybe not even that. I wouldn't say master. He's just a sorry player. He's just sorry. <laughs> we wrap this section up with something that is kind of revolting and sad and jarring and unexpected, at least to Kvoth, kind of a slap in the face. Yep. After his 
frustration in Elodin's class. He goes looking for Denna. And after a few swings and misses, he manages to finally find her. But the finger on the monkey's pod comes down, and she's with Ambrose. He's charming her. She's laughing. And Kvothe just feels the bottom drop out of his heart. I don't know what he was expecting. It was an eventuality. Denna's way of making a living is as a courtesan, which means that she is hanging out with the wealthiest people around. Sooner or later, that's going to be Ambrose. I mean, it's all well and good when it's Savoy. Speaking of Savoy, where's Savoy? Dunno. He's not important right now. I think he got dropped. Just a little bit. He got put on a bus, as they would say on TV tropes. <laughs> anyway, with that, I believe it's time to focus on one character. Who is your Fronimos? There's really only one rational choice here. And that's going to be Elodin, as irrational as he sometimes seems to be. His pedagogy maybe leaves something to be desired. But he's teaching people as if they're adults. And usually most of his students are adults in some capacity. So he has lessons that have very specific goals that are meant to help teach his students to observe the world. So first of all, the hunt, right? So that's all about teaching his students to recognize a story in their events. Naming has as much to do with stories as anything else. Stories matter. It was never about the contents of the books, but rather about the stories they got on their search. It was about the journey, not the destination. It's about learning to view the world around you and learn how to read the world around you. It's about the art of getting lost. The interesting fact is all about learning to look at the world with wonder and not letting your increasing knowledge make you blind to greater truths. It's about recognizing that the world is big. The universe is big. No one can know everything. There will always be new things to learn. There will always be new things to fascinate you. The more you know about a thing, the more fascinated you should become by it because the more you will discover that you don't know. And you shouldn't become arrogant in your knowledge. It's about humility. Elodin here shows this. He's genuinely fascinated when Fella explains what that meant for people who had no sight. It was something that Elodin had never considered before, and it fascinated him to discover it and to start thinking about it, to recognize that it's okay to not know things and to be surprised by things. You don't have to be a hipster about everything. <laughs> like, and Kvothe is a huge hipster. Well, if you don't already know about this, there's no way that you could possibly understand what I'm about to talk to you about. Oh my God, Kvothe, shut up. Well, what you have to understand is that she's playing a very fascinating thing that you would only understand if you were a musician. Kvothe is the ultimate gatekeeper. Like, he's a little... Shirthead. And interesting fact is not kind of... Shirtheads. And that milkweed pod is about how focusing single-mindedly on learning a specific thing is often a futile endeavor that only serves to blind you to greater truths, and it ultimately thwarts you in your chosen goal. So, for example... When we were learning ballroom dancing, because A, I like to dance, and B, at a certain point, we wanted to learn how to dance for our wedding so that we didn't make idiots of ourselves. They wanted us to go to classes on all the different styles of dance. 
and not just focus on the style of dance that we were interested in. So we were interested in swing dancing. Go to classes on the hustle, go to classes on the waltz, go to classes on rumba and cha-cha and... I believe we also did salsa and a variety because all of it was learning about rhythm. It was about learning how to listen to a song, recognize a rhythm, and think about what kind of moves you could do, and then how to work with your partner to communicate that non-verbally. It was a lot of fun. It was, and I'd love to do it again, or take lessons in any number of things again. Oh, in-person learning. <laughs> We're vaccinated! If you are not vaccinated, you should get vaccinated. And if you do not like us for saying that you should get vaccinated, I don't really care. Go away. Anyway, with that out of the way, I think it's pretty obvious that Elodin represents kind of a practically wise person for us to model our behavior after here. Let's all think about how we look at the world with a little bit more intention. And let's be a little thoughtful about how much we actually know. We don't have to be hipsters. In fact, we shouldn't be hipsters. We shouldn't be sophomores, the literal wise fool. We shouldn't let a little book learning stop us from learning more. So with that out of the way, let's actually follow his example here and talk about an interesting fact of the week. It's your turn. It is. I think you're going to like it. All right. What was the little magazine about all the animals that was like in the vein of highlights? There was zoo books. There was zoo books, and then there was also like the Ranger Rick stuff. Zoo books, Ranger Rick, National Geographic World. These are all things that you enjoyed as a small child. Yes. And as a not-so-small child. Yes. Okay. So I have a question for you. What do crabs, salamanders, and fish have in common? Well, I mean, there's the obvious. They spend the bulk of their lives in the water. But I'm sure there's something more interesting about all of this. All right. Well, if you're talking about the crab Connie Maranjanu, Marin, I can't, I can't wait. Maranjandu. I have to, there are so many vowels in that and my dyslexia is going <laughs> close enough. Maranjandu, wandering salamanders and keelyfish. Then the answer is they all live in trees. Interesting. Isn't a tree crab just a spider? You see a picture of this thing and oh my god. Giant shelled spider in a tree. Oh my god. <laughs> Thank the Lord that this is in India and that I will probably never go there. So anyway, the crab is a spider-like crab that lives exclusively in trees in the forests of the Western Ghats in uh, Kerala, India. They take advantage of the water found in tree cavities and that is trapped on leaves. And they are primarily going to eat slugs and leaves and seeds. And they live in hollows in the trees in the forest about 10 meters above the ground. And I find that both fascinating and terrifying. <laughs> and they are black. They have these claw things that allow them to hook into the bark. <laughs> and not fall off of the trees. They are only found in that one spot in India, and I am so glad. They seem kind of like the scraling. Uh-huh. So that's the crabs. Tell us about the fish. 
The fish, okay. The Keeley fish, who are classified as partly amphibious, have not actually developed any way of adapting things like feet or legs so that they can, you know, travel on land. So instead, they hurl themselves at trees and logs to reach their prey, which is generally aquatic insects, and subsequently have to hurl themselves back into the water <laughs> to avoid drying out. Where do these live? Some of them live like in, uh, they're in brackish water, like Florida or mangrove groves down through Central and South America, but they hurl themselves <laughs> like upwards of a hundred Keeley fish have been found in a log that there is no other way that they could have gotten there other than just like, <laughs> that's awesome. And right. then the salamander. Yep, let's talk about the salamander. So then there are the cute, by comparison, wandering salamanders. I do think that salamanders are kind of cute. And they live in the canopies of giant redwoods. They get their moisture primarily from water that collects in ferns that have made kind of a second forest floor in the canopy of the trees on the branches. And... They never wind up going into rivers and lakes and everything because they're so high up. They just live up in the trees. What do they eat? Bugs. There are these little non-winged, almost insect-looking things that aren't actually insects. And I forget what they're called, but that's their primary diet. Interesting. That's really cool. I like that one. So yeah, giant tree spider crap thingies. Mm -hmm. But cute little salamanders. But cute little salamanders and fish with a death wish. <laughs> All right. So with that, let's go ahead and move into our thing of the week. It's my turn. And so this time for thing of the week, I have chosen Jonathan Colton's thing of the week. <laughs> the thing a week series ran from 2005 through 2008. So Jonathan Colton is a Brooklyn based musician when he came up in the 90s, of course, being a professional musician really kind of sucked. I mean, it was bad. You're basically hustling, trying to get people to come to your shows, and you're just handing out flyers on the street and hoping you'd maybe get lucky. And CDs. And CDs, you know, trying to hand out a mixtape or whatever. It was brutal. Just hoping that you'd strike it rich. Hoping that someone would listen to it. So he ended up getting a job working at a software company. It was a dot-com startup. And so he was doing database work and it was okay. On the side, he was doing some writing and recording of his own stuff that he had for fun. And at one point, just through a random turn of events, he played his song Mandelbrot set at a conference and a lot of people really liked it. And then afterwards, he heard a talk by Lawrence Lessig describing the Creative Commons as a way to distribute music and intellectual property in general. And this got him thinking about what he could do to release digital copies of his music and get it disseminated and find a way to actually build a business model out of it. Eventually, once he reached the point where he had nothing left to give at that software company, he quit his job after his wife gave birth to a brand new daughter. That sounds... Like, maybe if I was his wife and he didn't discuss this with me, I might, you know, want to yeah. kill him. But hopefully he discussed it with her. So he quit his job and then ended up doing sort of what he described as a rotund death march of creativity. 
where he wrote, record, and released a new song every week from September of 2005 through September of 2006. He then released four compilations of these, which each roughly correspond to a season. Some of them are covers, some of them are mashups, some of them are funny songs, some are sad songs, some work, some don't. But again, that wasn't the point. It was all about getting himself to just do this, make this happen. And slowly but surely, it worked out. Some of my favorites are Dance Soterios Johnson Dance, which is this weird inside joke about New York public radio. We've got Re Your Brains, which is a song that a lot of people may be very familiar with, which describes a zombie outbreak in an office environment and dealing with a zombie coworker. Hey, Tom, it's Bob. From the office down the hall. Good to see you, buddy. How you been? <laughs> so then we've got Merry Christmas from Chiron Beta Prime. There's also Under the Pines, which describes a love story between Leonard Nimoy and Sasquatch from the old In Search of documentaries. Of course you love that. There's also When I'm 25 or 64, which is a mashup of when I'm 64 by the Beatles, and 250624 by <laughs> Chicago. And then there's My Monkey, which is a little song about two people dealing with stress and how sometimes it's easy to forget that negative reactions maybe aren't about how we feel about the other person. I really like My Monkey. Me too. I've seen all of these songs performed live. Mm -hmm. um, we've been to Jonathan Colton concerts in the past when he came to PAX. Our first PAX. Our first PAX, and uh, the one before that was my first time seeing him. And you have a photo of you and a bunch of our buddies holding him up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, Jonathan Colton is horizontal being held up by four of my friends. <laughs> I'll see if I can track that photo down and we'll put it on our Patreon page. Oh, okay. I'm sure I can find it. Yeah. Yeah, we'll do that. Yeah. But yeah, it's just something that every now and then a Joko song comes up on my playlist. I highly recommend it. You can go to his website for his full catalog. You can purchase directly from him. You can also stream the songs free of charge. Another thing that you might know Jonathan Colton from is what is actually our alarm clock noise and it has been for like 10 years at this point longer than that and that is the song from portal the ending credits still alive you can go to his website at www.jonathancolton.com there's some good laughs some good songs some of the songs maybe haven't aged so well, like a song about Flickr, because nobody remembers what Flickr was. <laughs> I remember what Flickr was. I mean, a lot of the Gen Z folk are like, what's Flickr? <laughs> That's true. If you're not careful with the logo and the font and the kerning. But anyway, I recommend it. So that's my thing of the week. I appreciate and love your thing of the week. So moving on with that, let's go ahead and talk about our seven words. I had seven words from the books this time. So I had a couple of options. So first is the desire for knowledge shapes a man, which is the rough translation of the words inscribed above the library, sorry, above the archives. <laughs> then we've got 
our young boy has a reading list. Yeah. Then we've got, I promise I won't ever do that. Again. And then, Tomes was like a great public garden. But the one I actually picked was, can I help? I'm falling asleep here. <laughs> Sometimes when you've been working really hard at just doing one thing for yourself, you need a break and it's a welcome change of pace to help someone else with their own problems. Sometimes that's what you need to get that perspective so that you can do what you're trying to accomplish so you can come back to it. You want to make sure that you eventually do come back to it. It's easy to start losing sight of your own issues as you're focusing on trying to help everyone else, but sometimes it can be useful to help someone else if you don't know what else to do for yourself. That is true, and taking a break has been proven to help you regain your focus as long as you don't take, you know, a 5, 10, 15 day, week, month break. Like I say, sometimes if you don't know what else to do, help someone else. See what happens. You might get the perspective you need to come back to your own task. So I have a couple of other ones I just want to say. Okay. I scowled as loudly as I could. I, I do like that one. There was treasure there among the dross. And also, because happy pride, why make a child terrified of rainbows? I couldn't help myself. I had to. That's all right. Always good to share. So you had seven words from life. What did you pick? I actually was thinking you were about to say them or something similar that you normally say when you were talking about how it's important to suck at things. Because my seven words from life are anything worth doing is worth doing imperfectly. Yeah. So you usually say badly or poorly at the end of that. And I disagree because I think that anything worth doing is worth doing badly implies that it is perfectly okay to not want to improve upon it. A little bit of that. There's a little bit of negativity that I don't particularly like in saying badly or poorly, but imperfectly because I have a habit of not wanting to start things for fear that it won't turn out the way that I wanted it to. So with our house project, whenever we can get that off the ground, I want to do things like paint a mural. I want to probably change out the floors. We have cats. One of them vomits a lot. It's a fact of our life. I do not want carpet. I have a vendetta against carpet in our house. And so tongue and groove flooring, it seems a little like building Legos. And I'm good at that. And I like doing things like that. I might not be great at it, but it is worth trying. It is worth doing it imperfectly versus having to clean whatever Leela deposits on the carpet off of the carpet. It is worth starting the project. It is worth doing something that then needs to get redone when you've learned more. But you're not going to learn more if you never start, if you never take the first step, if you never try. And so not everything is going to turn out perfectly. I'm aware of that. But it shouldn't stop you from taking that step. 
you might find out that you're really bad at something and that you would rather pay people who are good at it. Or you might know yourself well enough to realize that you do not want to deal with things that are plumbing, electrical, or structural in the house that you just bought. And therefore you will hire a contractor to do such things or a plumber or an electrician because that's what they do and you would rather not get shocked when you try to change out a ceiling fan. Could I watch a YouTube video and kind of get the gist of some of these things? Yes. Will I? No. I will hire someone at that point. I will save the money and hire someone. But if I want to paint or if I want to redo some flooring or if I want to make some other improvements that are not in one of those three categories, if I want to go and buy a whole bunch of Ikea furniture and build it all, I'm already pretty good at that, but it's okay if something is less than perfect. It's worth doing imperfectly. So one of the things that I've been trying to hammer home with a lot of my partners at work is that it's worth having an incomplete document of how to support a given service because it is better to have something that is imperfect and that can go out of date than to have nothing. Because if we have nothing, then all we have is tribal knowledge and that disappears as soon as someone changes positions or forgets it. And you don't want to rely on that. If an article goes out of date, we can always update it. That's no big deal. That's easy. That's a simple thing. And we have means to do so. The document should be viewed as the start. It's what helps us grow. And we don't have to have everything exhaustive. We would rather have something that exists than to have a completely detailed document that doesn't exist. In other things, like both of us have mental health issues. And sometimes you look at a task that you know that you need to do. You look at the pile of laundry and you go, but I don't wanna. And then for me, sometimes I'll just start it. And then seven hours later go, shirt. I forgot to move it into the dryer. Rerun it. Just rerun it. Yeah. It's not great. It's not a wonderful solution. Yeah, there's some guilt about the drought conditions in the Western USA. Rerun it. Similarly, I feel the same way about dishes a lot of times. Sometimes I only have it in me to do a certain amount of them. But I also know that starting and doing some of them is better than not doing any of them. Brushing my teeth. Yeah. Sometimes I can't sit there for the whole two minutes that my electric toothbrush is trying to tell me to do. But it is better to try to brush my teeth than to not brush my teeth. Yep. Or to shower instead of not shower. Or to move my body from the bed to the couch. Something. Anything worth doing is worth doing imperfectly. It is okay if you do not have the spell slots. The other metaphor is spoons, but we go with spell slots. Nerds. And we like it. But it is perfectly acceptable, especially in our house, to say, I can't do the whole thing or stuff is still stuck on the dishes because I couldn't get the oomph to pre-rinse all of the dishes. Run it again. Just, it's okay. 
run the dishwasher twice. It's okay to do things in a way that isn't perfect. Well, with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we cover chapters 16 through 18 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of processing grief. We would like to extend a huge thank you to our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production editing and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please consider helping us out on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can see funny photos of Will holding up Joko, as well as early access to the podcast and bonus pods. We just released our Solstice pod, and I really, really like it. It's full of galaxy brain takes on theories and i think it's probably my favorite of our bonus pods so far there's also opportunities to get me to do more art send you some of the art that is currently cluttering up will's office something anything let us know if you like the pricing structure let us know if you hate it there are some that i can't change but there are some that i can because absolutely no one has signed up for them yet there's also just the opportunity to chat with us. I do respond when I visit, and I do visit at least every two weeks because I have to post new episodes. There's also stories on some of the bonus pods about our cat vomiting on books. I don't know that that really is a selling point. <laughs> I'm not saying that it is. I'm just saying that they're there. Anyway, with that, Here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Shall we dive in? Yes. All right. Let us become sea monsters. <laughs> okay, look at how I how I wrote archives. <laughs> Anchovies is what it looks like. Uh-huh. At least you read that as an A. I am having a hard time reading that as an A. And I wrote it. We start with a hunt through the archives. Or the anchovies. What do I have if I do not have pedantry? Well, you've got a loving husband. <laughs> Touché.
And besides, I'm the pedanteer. <laughs> That's my lane. You don't want me to step in it? Stay in your lane, bucko. The other question is, who is us in this canary? Sorry, in this scenario? In this canary? In this, who is us in this scenario? So it's fork, shirt, bench, ash, cork, deck, here. Here? Here is hell. Oh. What the here? What the here? <laughs> <laughs> okay. That works. So deck, cool. <laughs> 